Hello and welcome to the Mindful in Minutes podcast, a guided meditations podcast brought to you by Yoga for You. I'm Kelly, and today I'll be leading you through your meditation. So go ahead and get comfortable, settle in, and enjoy your meditation practice. Hello, everyone. Welcome to this freeform episode of the Mindful in Minutes podcast. Today, we are going to be diving into some good old anatomy, some science, and we're going to look at what is actually happening in our brains and in our bodies when we are experiencing anxiety. Uh, One quick reminder, there are a few spots left in my Portugal retreat. I know hard pivot there. Um, (laughs) I wasn't sure how to like softly transition it um, because I know a lot of you skip the intro and then you miss that and they're like, what? There were still spots left. So I'm sneaking it in. But guys, there's still just a couple, like three spots left in the Portugal retreat um, at the end of April into early May. I think it's April 29th through May 4th, if I remember correctly, off the top of my head. I would love to have you there. These retreats are so special. This is going to be the last international retreat that I'm doing um, definitely for the year um, and 2024 is still TBD. We will see. Um, but yeah, so I'd love to have you there. If you're like, I need a retreat this year. Um, the next international one, it, you know, full disclosure, it will not be until hopefully best case scenario, mid 2024, late 2024. It's going to be a while guys. Cause as you know, I would love to continue to grow my family, Um, and so I'm taking, just stepping back a little bit from retreats. So I'm going to do this Portugal one and I'm going to do a uh, domestic one, hopefully this summer. And then that will be it for a while as I scale back on the travel a little bit. Um, so yeah, so I'd love to, I'd love to have you there if it works for you. All right, let's dive into some good old science. You guys know how much I love science. I love learning and I don't love that a lot of us have anxiety, but I do love that there's something that we can do about it and that there's a way that we can improve upon it. And just a couple of stats um, to put kind of the anxiety just in some context here. Um, This isn't really a stat. This is just a personal like Kelly stat. I probably get more emails about anxiety and more requests about anxiety, more DMs about anxiety than anything else, whether it's getting a DM saying, you know, I started to meditate because I heard it could be good for anxiety. I was really struggling or my anxiety has been really bad. Can meditation help me? Um, You know, whatever it is, can you do more anxiety meditations? So I hear about anxiety all the time and I know it's a thing that we are collectively struggling with. And just in the U.S. alone, anxiety disorders are the most common mental illness in the U.S., affecting about 40 million adults and many children, too. Um, It currently affects about 25% of American children between ages 13 and 18 years of age, which that kind of breaks my heart. It's like I know I've experienced anxiety and I know what that feels like. I don't want anyone to experience it, but in particular, like those little ones, and they have so much on their plate. And it's just a lot makes me sad to hear that, you know, such a big chunk of our children are also struggling with anxiety. Um, Like I said, it's something that I've struggled with too, with different ebbs and flows. Definitely, it was worse at, you know, before I really started my meditation journey, I was struggling, I would 
from time to time have panic attacks. Um, I had a lot of like social anxiety and yeah, really just, I don't know what to say. Anxiety is the worst. <laughs> it's the worst, you guys. And honestly, one of the biggest tools that I have is my meditation practice. Like I said, my anxiety has ebbed and flowed. Um, it kind of came back with the vengeance when I had pork chop and I definitely struggled with some postpartum anxiety. I think I've told this story before. Um, so if I have, I apologize. You're about to hear it again. But I really, it, it became so apparent to me that I was struggling with my anxiety in those first few weeks of pork chop's life because I like wouldn't let myself sleep. I was so convinced that something bad was going to happen to him while he was sleeping that like if he was sleeping, I was awake. And it was so eye-opening to me like when I was just like breaking down, like physically, mentally, emotionally breaking down because I just wasn't sleeping and I was just so scared, so worried about something bad happening to him while he was asleep if I let myself sleep. And it was really eye-opening to me in that moment of like how all-encompassing that anxiety was. And I had to really go back to my meditation practice. Like that to me really feels like the thing that saved me. In a way, it really felt like the thing that like anchored me and grounded me a little bit. So I'm extra passionate about this. I laugh because it's like, I mean, you know, I get really worked up about this sort of stuff. I just love it. I love sharing it. I love teaching it. But I feel so strongly about how meditation can help with anxiety. And I also feel really strongly around helping people with their anxiety because I have experienced it. And it, like I said, it's the worst. It's so bad. And like, if I, you know, could just wipe away everyone's anxiety, um, I would. <laughs> and, but for me, like a lot of times creating these meditations, um, creating practices, you know, there are a lot of anxiety meditations on this podcast. But the more tools that I can put for people, you know, out there for people to put in their toolbox for their anxiety being one big piece, um, that's just, it's something that's really important to me and, and a big piece of, you know, why I created this podcast was because I not only knew how beneficial meditation was in my life, but I also knew how beneficial it was in my students' life. And so I wanted to, you know, continue to share these tools and share these practices um, with my students when I moved and I was farther away. I didn't have my studio anymore. And now it's continued to grow. So yeah, that's, that's, I don't know, I guess that's a little context of anxiety and just know that if you're experiencing anxiety, you're not alone. Um, like I said, it's really common. That doesn't minimize what you're feeling, um, but you're certainly not alone. Which leads me to what we're going to discuss today, which is the anatomy of anxiety. So what is happening on a physiological and neurological level with our anxiety? The reason I wanted to explore this particular topic, and this is a topic that I, I explored on this podcast, like, I think this is one of the first freeform episodes I ever did years ago. And that particular episode, there was like kind of like an audio glitch. I ended up taking it down um, because the production quality of it, it wasn't quite right. And so I took it down. And since then, I've learned a little bit more. I've, you know, just continued to try to expand my horizons, learn more about what's happening, learn more about the brain. And I thought, you know what? We're feeling anxious. There's a lot going on. We're bringing her back. We're revamping her. 
and we're bringing her back. And I know a lot of you weren't here years ago, and chances are you never heard that original episode. And if you did, one, thank you for being with me for so long. And I am so grateful for you. And two, there's even more information in this one. And the reason that I wanted to revisit this is because for me, a big piece of managing my anxiety has, it's like the more I can learn about it and the more that I understand what is happening on that physiological level, like when I can reframe it and be like, okay, I, you know, I'm having a physiological response to a trigger. This is what's happening in my body. This is what's happening in my mind. That's really helped me to reframe my anxiety instead of being like so thick in like the depths of like you're just in that anxiety and you feel like you're like drowning and you just need like a breath of air. Like for me, being able to step back and reframe it and say, this is what's happening. This is a response. It's really helped me in those like thick, thick anxiety moments. So I wanted to share it all with you in case it resonates with you as well and helps you reframe in those moments of anxiety. Or maybe you just are kind of a nerd and um, you just like learning about anatomy and science like I do. All are welcome here. So let's see here. You know, I always have like a couple of notes just to try to keep my little neurospicy brain on track. So I just want to dive right in. We're going to go right into the anatomy of anxiety. When we're looking at the anatomy of anxiety or what's happening when we experience anxiety, there's a few key players. There's really three key players here. It's the limbic system, the sympathetic nervous system, and the parasympathetic nervous system. So the limbic system is a key area of the brain for the regulation of emotions and anxiety. It's responsible for processing like incoming stimuli and regulating our emotional responses to those stimuli. Um, the limbic system is made up primarily of the amygdala, the hippocampus, and the thalamus, which you may also remember if you listen to, I can't quite remember the name of it. It was the one kind of on the anatomy of depression. Um, I think it's called Depression, Meditation, and Your Brain, uh, released a couple of months ago. You will recognize a lot of these regions, particularly like the thalamus and the hippocampus, because they came up in that episode too. And it's because this limbic system plays such a big role in our emotions, which then plays into anxiety and potentially depression. So keeping those in mind, we'll dive deeper into all of these. Limbic system um, is the amygdala, the hippocampus, and the thalamus. The sympathetic nervous system, that is the fight or flight mechanism, right? That is the part that increases your body's activity when you're stressed, when you're in danger, like when you're physically active. And the thing that's important to remember here is that fight or flight is one, it's an important thing. Like it's a protection, it's a survival mechanism, right? I think it gets a bad rap. It is essential to our survival. It's also what, you know, if we go for a run, right? And our heart rate's up and, you know, we're sweating all of that. It's, it all is the same thing. So if you immediately get triggered when you hear fight or flight, which I think often we do, especially in this meditation space, because we're like, no, 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 we don't want that. Um, remember that it is a survival mechanism. It's an important thing that we should be able to do. But again, we're going to dive deeper into all of this. Um, the main function of the sympathetic nervous system is to increase blood pressure, sweat, dilate blood vessels, increase heart rate in response to a trigger. And that's what causes that feeling of like stress or breathlessness 
with anxiety. So then on the flip side, we have the parasympathetic nervous system, which is a network of nerves and mechanisms that relax your body after periods of stress or danger or, you know, high activity. This one is referred to as the rest and digest system. So the parasympathetic nervous system helps bring the body back to a state of calm and kind of so you can become more composed and reduce those feelings of stress and anxiety. It also kicks more like you start digesting. Like it basically what happens is when you're in fight or flight, if you're going to, well, let's just dive into it. Um, I just, you know, I can't help myself. I just want to go there. So I want to first explore the difference between the sympathetic nervous system and the parasympathetic nervous system. And this is like very kind of high level. Often I, when I'm, you know, learning these anatomy things, when I'm trying to educate myself on it. And then I run it past my husband, um, who is a, is a doctor, and I'll be like, did I get this right? And then he usually explains it to me in like this very, like, so in-depth, like, I don't even, like, I'm like, what language were you just speaking? And I'll be like, okay. And then together, <laughs> we will go through and I'll do my best to understand, you know, everything that I can and then try to kind of relay it in like a digestible way. And that's how I remember things. I don't remember all of the little ins and outs that he shares. I remember like the silly things that stick in my head. Um, one quick tangent for any of my, I don't know, like physiology nerds, but the difference between abduction and adduction, we talk about this a lot in, you know, 200 hour yoga teacher training, anatomy, um, basically like is it moving away from the body or away from the midline or is it moving towards the midline? And my husband teaches the anatomy portion of my um, yoga teacher training. And it's just like, you know, he's teaching, you know, about the two and the difference. And I was like, yeah, it's like, you know, abduction is the one that it's moving away from the midline because like if you were being abducted from <laughs> by aliens, you would be like lifted away and lifted up. And I don't know what it is. And then adduction is like if the aliens were bringing you back and they'd be adding you back to Earth again. And I don't know why that is the thing that has like stuck with me. And he kind of just like looked at me like, yeah, that's a way to describe it. But I remember it now. And maybe if anyone struggles with that, you can remember it too. So he explains it on like an actual like med school and then I take it, I bring it down to earth for you, just some good old like aliens and, you know, digest it that way. So back to, you know, parasympathetic and sympathetic nervous system. So the sympathetic nervous system um, and the way I, I kind of remember like which is which, the sympathetic nervous system, like if you see someone and they're in like fight or flight and they're really having this big like anxiety moment, you will probably have a lot of sympathy for them. So sympathy, sympathetic, fight or flight. That's how I remember it. I don't know if that helps anyone else, um, but I bet you'll remember the whole alien thing with, you know, abduction. Anyways, so sympathetic nervous system, fight or flight. So the way that I remember this and the way that I think about what's happening in my body, I always think about this example that I use every time I teach this. And it's, you know, you're going for a walk, you're going for a hike, and a bear crosses your path. Right away, your eyes are going to see the stressor. They're going to see the trigger, right? Seeing the danger of this big grizzly bear that just crossed your path. 
immediately before like you even can process what's happening, your body is automatically going to kick into that fight or flight. And it's going to prepare you to either fight the bear, which you could try. I don't know if I'd recommend that one. Um, you might, you know, try to run away. There's also, you know, the freeze response. But right away, your body is preparing you to either run away or fight this bear. So it's not worried about like digesting your lunch that you ate before the hike, right? It's not worried about, um, you know, processing like core memories or like building the linguistic skills of your brain, right? It's worried about preparing your extremities. So legs, in case you have to run, arms, in case you're going to like punch the bear. Um, It's going to dilate your pupils so that you can see danger coming. It's going to increase your heart rate because whether you run or fight or whatever you do, it's probably going to require a lot of effort to do that. You're going to start sweating. Um, And that is just, that's your sympathetic nervous system. That's your fight or flight. And the thing is, is that our bodies can't distinguish, like our minds cannot distinguish between different types of triggers. So in theory, we're really only designed to be in fight or flight for like 90 seconds tops or like two minutes tops because it is the survival mechanism. So we see the danger, we either run away from the danger and then we're safe, we can start going to baseline. Maybe we tried to fight the bear and then we got eaten by the bear, then we're dead and then Ooh, then, you know, we're certainly not in fight or flight anymore because we are no longer earthbound um, or the bear keeps walking away or whatever it is and it's gone, right? There's going to be a short amount of time in which there is that danger. We have to do something about it and then the situation changes and then we start going back to baseline. Now, our minds cannot distinguish between the bear or an upsetting email you get at work or a fight that you had with your friend, or something distressing that you saw on the news. They are all things that trigger this stress response. So what happens is that we just, we as the collective are in this chronic constant fight or flight state. Now it might not be quite as intense all the time as a bear crossing your path when you're hiking, but if we never let ourselves go back to baseline or move towards the parasympathetic nervous system, which I'll dive into in a moment. If we're in this constant just light activation of fight or flight, one, it's not good for our bodies. We are not designed to be in that state all the time. It's not good for our minds. We'll talk about what's happening in our mind, but basically it's overworking different parts of the brain and making the parts responsible for fight or flight like the amygdala, which you should be familiar with if you're a fan of this podcast because we talk about the amygdala a lot. Um, It can get bigger. It can get more overactive. It can give you faster and bigger physiological responses to those stressors, right? We have to get out of that fight or flight so that we can start moving back towards baseline. But we live in this overstimulated, like, over-information world, and we're constantly getting these little stressors over and over and over and over, these little triggers, which keeps us in kind of this constant chronic fight-or-flight state, the sympathetic nervous systems working in overtime. So then on the flip side, the parasympathetic nervous system, which is basically like the opposite duh, of the sympathetic nervous system. But in terms of what it does or the focuses in your body, it does like the opposite of what your body does when it sees that 
bear. So it's going to send a lot of the blood in circulation to your digestive organs because you don't have to run away from a danger or fight someone or something, right? So you can start digesting. It is going to lower your blood pressure. It's going to lower your heart rate. It's going to kind of constrict your pupils because you don't have to have them be huge to take in any little danger that may be around you. It's going to be a big piece of the healing and regeneration of the body. So we talk about this a lot on this podcast as well, is that your body, it regenerates and heals in sleep. Like during the day or when we're active, it's like our body's working and that needs those moments of rest to reset, to regenerate, all of that. We really can't do that and we're not designed to do that in the fight or flight because we're just trying to survive in that moment. So like fight or flight or sympathetic is surviving and then parasympathetic is like thriving, right? We're we're resetting, we're resting, we're digesting, we're rejuvenating. Um, all of these important things are happening in our body that we weren't doing when we were focused on surviving. So all of that means is with meditation, and I'll talk about the mind in just a moment, With meditation, what happens is the act of meditation itself helps to bring you from that state of fight or flight and into that space of rest and digest. So it's a way of like alleviating this pressure valve of constant fight or flight, these triggers as stress, as anxiety. And the meditation can act as alleviating some of that pressure. I want to tell you about a new podcast I discovered, and it is the Secret Life Podcast. And this podcast is full of true confessions of love, sex, money, food, addiction, and hidden taboo topics that are often hilarious, uplifting, and hopeful. So every Monday, you can join bestselling author and actress Brianne Davis. She pulls back the curtain on the deepest, darkest, heartbreaking, and sometimes silly secrets from an eclectic group of guests, including celebrities and anonymous listeners. And with over a decade of recovery, Brianne's army approach creates an intimate and safe space for her guests to bear their souls, uncover their truth as guests share practical advice. So if this resonates with you, go check out the Secret Life podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening right now. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Now, I don't know about all of you, but sometimes I feel like when I show up as my best, I can do really great things. But on the flip side, when I am not showing up as my best, I can really get bogged down. I can feel overwhelmed and I can just feel like I'm not showing up in the way that I want to professionally, personally, within my family. And I have found that in those moments, working with a therapist can be such a helpful way to help get me closer to that kind of best version of myself or that more aligned version of myself. Because when I feel empowered... I just feel more prepared to take on kind of those ups and downs of life and like I can show up as the person that I want to be for myself and also for others. So if you're thinking about giving therapy a try, BetterHelp is a great option. It's convenient, flexible, affordable. It's entirely online. You just fill out this brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and you can switch anytime that you want. And if you want to live a more empowered life, therapy can get you there. Just visit betterhelp.com slash minutes today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash minutes. So now let's circle back to our brains and what's happening on a neurological level when we are experiencing anxiety. And then I want to explore 
some of my favorite ways to kind of reduce anxiety, but like in the moment. So some of my favorite kind of anxiety reducing practices that you can give a try. So going back to that limbic system, in a nutshell, when we're talking about the limbic system and what's happening in our brains while we are experiencing anxiety, is if we go back to that trigger or that stressor, right? We see that bear cross our path. So we see the bear and then right away that information goes into our brain and it is processed and then sends a signal to the amygdala. And just a quick refresher, the amygdala is like the pain, worry, fear center of the brain. It's also the part that's responsible for kicking off that fight or flight kind of chain reaction. So our brain sees, oop, stressor, danger, warning. It processes whatever you're seeing or hearing, whatever it is, sends that right to the amygdala. The amygdala says, this is a survival situation. I know what to do. I am going to start sending blood to my extremities. I'm going to raise my heart rate. I'm going to start sweating. I'm going to dilate my pupils, right? That's where we get that, like, you get that email or that person sends you a text message and you're like, oh my gosh, what are they texting me for, right? And you automatically have that same kind of, like, fear and anxiety response. So the amygdala kicks off because it can't distinguish between is it a bear? Is it a fight with someone? Is it an uncomfortable person? Is it watching something stressful on the news? It just knows stressor, danger, warning, interpret that, send the information to the amygdala. The amygdala kicks off that fight or flight mechanism. And you also have like the hippocampus and the thalamus, which play an interesting role in memory. So it actually can remember like these stressors and it will help you to adapt over time. So this can be the part of the brain that like, let's say you're going on that same hike and you'll remember, you'll be like, oh, this is where I saw that bear, right? And it has kind of that like memory trauma response and can then be like, oh, you need to be on high alert because last time it was dangerous here. And again, speaks to the amygdala, which can start that fight or flight again. What can happen over time if we're in this constant chronic state of fight or flight is that the amygdala can actually increase in size and density and it can become overactive, which means we can start to have, because remember the brain and our bodies were designed to adapt and survive. So if we're constantly needing the amygdala to work, just like if I was going to go to the gym and like only do upper body, right? My upper body is going to get way bigger and stronger than any other part of my body because that's the one that's constantly working and lifting weights. Our brain is the same, right? This idea that our brain can change and adapt and is constantly evolving is called neuroplasticity. So our amygdala gets bigger, it gets stronger, it starts having these faster and bigger fight or flight responses to triggers, to stressors, to those, you know, anxiety cues. And then right away it kicks you into that fight or flight and then before you know it, We are off to the races. We're experiencing anxiety, maybe having these full-blown panic attacks. So what we have to do, and this is where learning all of this, for me, it it really helped me to reframe my anxiety because what I realized in those moments, like, okay, and, and for me, anxiety shows up as getting like a little bit breathless, um, racing thoughts, and tightness in my chest. That's how it usually manifests for me. So when I have those moments and I'm feeling that and I recognize like, okay, that's, you know, my physiological response to some kind of a trigger, whether it be something I saw or heard something, you know, in the world or something, because this can happen too. If you think about something 
stressful, right? You think about that bear and then you automatically, it's like your body will start responding. You're like, oh yeah, that was so scary, right? So anytime I have some kind of a trigger or stressor and I start having that physiological response, I can remind myself, okay, my body is doing what it is supposed to be doing. And that's where I can pull out the tools from my toolbox to try to kind of quell that fight or flight response. Because what we want to do is we want to be able to turn the volume down on fight or flight or the sympathetic nervous system and then start moving towards the parasympathetic nervous system, right? Bringing that heart rate down, um, you know, dropping our blood pressure, dropping our heart rate, reducing our sweating, not having those crazy racing thoughts, right? Instead of survive mode, we want to be in thrive and reset mode. So the way that you can do that, and there's been some really interesting studies specifically on meditation in the brain. I know I've talked about these. Sarah Lazar is like my absolute favorite, but she has this very famous study that did show that people, when they meditate every single day, um, and we know that eight to 12 minutes, I should say 10 minutes a day is enough to get these benefits. So people, when they're meditating for, she did about 30 minutes, but there's some other studies that suggest 10 minutes is enough. Um, that you will start to get changes in key areas of the brain like the thalamus, hippocampus, prefrontal cortex, and the amygdala. So over time, what you're doing with a regular meditation practice is you are kind of reversing that overactive amygdala and that like quick trigger fight or flight mechanism. That's in the long run. Now, in the short term, what you can do is kind of in the moment practices meditations, breaths that help to turn the volume down or fight on fight or flight in the moment and get you more to that rest and digest. So two things here that I want to reiterate. So one, not only can meditation help you or different kind of mindfulness tools help you with in the moment anxiety, but also long term. So we're talking, you know, regular meditation of about eight weeks is enough to change these key anxiety regions of the brain to have smaller physiological and neurological responses to stress and anxiety triggers. So big stuff here. Again, that's Sarah Lazar um, out of Boston, Shirks with Harvard, you know, no big deal. She's just like the greatest ever. Um, <laughs> so that leads me to some of my personal, I guess, like anxiety tools for my toolbox. And these are in the moment. So if we're looking at long term, what that's going to look like is meditating every single day for about 10 minutes. And consistency is key here, right? Just like anything, you're going to go to the gym, you're going to lift weights, you can't go and lift like the biggest, baddest weight you can find like one time and then be like, oh, you know, I, I have such, you know, my strength has been transformed, right? It's going, it's slowly increasing, it's building up that strength over time and using resistance. So it really is about consistency. You can easily do this. You can do this if you're listening to this podcast right now and it's, you know, I'm not saying you have to meditate with me. But you, there's like 300 meditations on here. You can easily hit play every single day on one of them. And all you have to do is like what, eight to 12 weeks. Let me do the math really quick. Um, so that's like, like 56 to, you know, like between 50 and 80 days worth of meditation. Um, you can do that. 
you can just, you know, in theory, right, if you're already listening to this, just like hit play on one and then like do do that. There's also so many wonderful meditation tools out there. You can also do your own thing. But 10 minutes every day for – I'm feeling <laughs> – as I'm saying that, I'm feeling insecure about my math skills and how everyone is like silently in their cars wherever you're listening to this, like roasting me for being like, oh, they didn't teach you math in meditation school. Um, so now I'm in my head about it. So pause for one second while I quick do this math to make sure I'm not losing it. Okay, I was basically right. Um, <laughs> I don't know why I second guess that. I was like, no, like high 50s, low 60s. No, that's not the... That's not the minimum. I don't know. I just checked it. And I was like, Kelly, hello. That's just two months, which is 60 days. So anyways, feel free. If you are silently roasting me for my math skills, just feel free to keep doing that. But I got in my head about it. So I had to double check of like, what if it's actually a completely different number? So I can tell you about the brain, but sometimes I can't count to 60. You know, we can't we, we can't all be perfect here, friends. Anyways two to three months regular meditation, consistency, 10 minutes a day. Now we know that's like 60 to 90 days. You can do it. Um, so there's that. That's going to be like our long-term strategy is that we know this regular meditation every single day for a few minutes is going to give us kind of those long-term results and long-term changes. Now let's talk about kind of the short-term in the moment. I like to use exhale longer than inhales. This is one of my favorite breath techniques. It has been shown to activate the parasympathetic nervous system and quell anxiety. All you do is you just make your exhales longer than your inhales. You'll often hear me describe it as an inhale for four and an exhale for seven or something similar like that. This particular breath, so if you're experiencing anxiety, one, just focusing on breath, like getting the air in and out, especially if you're like me and you get kind of that tight chest, you get that, you know, breathlessness. Um, just focus on the breath. If you're getting air in and out, try extending your exhales so that they're longer than your inhales. And this one has been shown to activate your parasympathetic nervous system. That's why you hear me do this particular breath or something similar a lot in the anxiety-specific meditations it's because it's been scientifically proven to help in the moment. Another thing that I find really helps me is naming the anxiety and recognizing that it's a physiological response. So being like, I am right now, my body is responding to a stressor. I know what to do. It's just a physiological response. I'm going to try connecting with my breath. I'm going to listen to a guided meditation that I know helps me. Um, also, sometimes, you know, like naming it can help it. Saying it out loud. When I was really experiencing some postpartum anxiety and I was like, well, I'm afraid to sleep because what if something bad happens when poor Chop is sleeping? Of course, my feelings were valid. But once I named it, I spoke it out loud. I realized like that was not sustainable. That wasn't going to work. I couldn't like not sleep for the rest of my life. So I find sometimes like naming it, verbalizing it, whether you just are honest with yourself about it or telling a friend that you trust or journaling about it um, can really help. Also looking at is this a truth or is this a thought? This is something my therapist taught me way back. And when you're having this thing, like we have a lot of thoughts throughout the day, but a lot of them aren't truths. So either looking at A, how likely is this thing? So going back to my postpartum anxiety, how likely was it that, you know, if I let myself sleep, something horrible would happen to Porkchop? 
It was possible, but it wasn't super likely. Odds were in my favor, not to say that that stuff doesn't happen. It absolutely does. And it is tragic. Um, But it is not, it wasn't the most likely thing that would happen. So asking myself, is this just a thought I'm having or is this a truth? And looking at those and reframing it. And if it's a truth, we usually don't have like a lot of anxieties around like our truth, but we get a lot of anxiety around thoughts. So deciphering between those two, I found to be really helpful in the moment. Um, trying some kind of an introverting practice like restorative yoga or yoga nidra can be really helpful too because they're a little bit longer. They take time. They're designed to really feed into that parasympathetic nervous system and to reduce that fight or flight mechanism. Um, so those can be really nice things to do. Um, seeking professional help. You know, if you really if you really are struggling with your anxiety, like asking for help, uh, whether it be from someone that you trust or getting professional help from a therapist or specialist um, can be a great way to do that. And um, yeah, also one other note that I had is making a note of what seems to trigger your anxiety that isn't the actual fear. So again, once we know that we're having these responses to triggers or stressors, start to pay attention to things whether directly related or not directly related, that give you anxiety. So for me, I've always noticed that like if I have more than one glass of wine at night specifically, I wake up in the middle of the night and I feel kind of anxious always. So I know that about myself, so I don't do it. Also, if there is like a certain place, and it's not to say like avoid everything that gives you anxiety, like there is definitely a piece to like, you know, facing your fears or exposing yourself. But if there's just some things that it's like that kind of unnecessarily gives me anxiety or seems to feed into my anxiety, like ask yourself, like, do I need to do this? Or is it kind of for my greatest and highest good to stop doing it or do it less? Just like try to connect the dots between things like small things that you can do, small changes you can make that seem to have an impact on your anxiety. Um, I think that is, that's all I had for my notes in terms of like what's happening and the anatomy of anxiety and how meditation can help. And then a couple of tools for your toolbox. I think that's really it. I hope that you found this interesting. I love learning about this stuff. It's part of the reason why it's a big piece of why I love being like a teacher's teacher, why I love doing teacher trainings. Like this is just one little piece of like, you know, there's a whole module on a whole lesson on like anatomy and meditation teacher training and like what happens like in the brain and all, you know, all these different benefits and changes that happen. Like I just find it so interesting because it not only, you know, I love some good data and science, but it helps to back up these things that we've like intuitively known, right? Like even without knowing anything, you can know that going to a quiet place in moments of anxiety, taking deep breaths, that that helps to calm you down. But then we have this science with these studies that back up what we can feel and what we intuitively know. And I think that's so cool. And for me, like the sweet spot is kind of, you know, meshing the two, right? So connecting with what makes me feel better, like intuitively, what do I know serves my greatest and highest good or improves my well-being or my anxiety, whatever it is. And what does the data say? And like, what does the science say? 
you know, what does the the body do and respond? And then finding the sweet spot between the two is usually where the magic happens. So I love learning about this type of stuff um, so that I can not only, you know, teach it and share it with all of you, but then also when I teach teachers, then they're able to help educate their students on this as well. So hopefully you found this to be interesting or it gave you something to think about. I am so grateful that you're here and that's it. Maybe I'll see you in Portugal. Maybe I'll see you on the internet. Maybe I'll just not know that I'm seeing you, but I'm in your, you know, ears right now. So whatever it is, um, thanks for being here. And I hope that you have a beautiful day.